Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, returning to us for his ninth episode on Dr. Doctor. The most for any guest talking about something besides the COVID pandemic is Dr. Kevin Majors, psychiatrist extraordinaire at Harvard Medical School. Today, he's going to give us a tour, a functional tour of the brain, up, down, left, right, front, back, going beyond the mere anatomy to find out how we can get the most out of that three pounds of stuff that occupies the space between our ears. You know, one of the things I love about Kevin is how simple he makes things. And when he's talking about the functionality of the brain, it really brings to light a lot of the other topics we've covered regarding prayer and anxiety and how to utilize our emotions and try and get into that flow state that he talks about. So I think our listeners are going to really enjoy this one. And he's always got some unexpected pearls. Uh, Last time we did an episode, he said, suffering is a quantum of the cross, it's like, wow. I mean, it must be, a, you know, the, the town that has MIT and Harvard has people think like that. And my favorite one from his last episode, he said, the universe is not optimized for our enjoyment. It is optimized for our growth, meaning our, our growth to become holy and virtuous. Uh, so I can't wait to hear what he comes up with this time. Yeah, he, he always has some good one-liners and uh, just bringing it into something that we can understand. He, he works in this psychology, neuropsychology field, but I, I love how he makes it applicable for our daily lives. One of the things we hear about with the brain is gray matter. Gray matter makes up about uh, 40% of the brain's mass, and that's the surface of the cerebral hemispheres, the, the two big halves of the brain we think about that have all those little... Um, Oh, salsi and gyri, all, all that little folding that goes on. And the gray matter is the surface. And that's made up of the uh, ends of neurons where nerve cells communicate with each other. And since there's between 14 and 16 billion of them, b- billion with a B as in they make honey, that's a lot of interconnectedness. And they're gray because they don't have this little uh, fatty layer around them to help with electrical conduction. That's down in the white matter which you can't see. And that's where just the long cell bodies, uh, they're called axons of the nerves are located, where there is no interconnectedness going on. So we're going to hear a lot of talk about cerebral cortex. And if you're a fan of Agatha Christie, her, one of her uh, detectives, Hercule Poirot, talks about using his little gray cells. And so that's what the little gray cells are. And we can divide the, the cerebrum, the cerebral hemispheres, into four main areas. Andrew? Well, there's the ways that we kind of look at it from the functional standpoint with Kevin are the top and bottom and the front and the back, and they all do Uh, different things. But we're talking about here just the anatomy. There's frontal, temporal, parietal, and occipital lobes of the brain, and they correspond with areas of the skull. So the, the frontal scalp has the frontal lobe beneath it, and that's from if you draw a line straight up from where your ears meet, your cheek across the top of your head, down to your forehead, that's the frontal uh, scalp, and under it is the frontal lobe of the brain. And then underneath your temples, roughly, and just above your ears and on the inside, that's where the temporal lobes are. Uh, The parietal lobe and the parietal scalp is kind of behind the frontal scalp to that area where men develop a fringe of hair if they lose all their other hair. Then the occipital scalp, that's the last place that men lose hair, the occipital lobe is below that. So we may hear uh, references to that from Kevin tonight. So that's kind of the anatomy. And then Kevin's going to focus on the function of each of those areas. and Which is going to be great. I know we want to save a lot of time for the interview. So before we get to talk to Kevin, let's hear about the medical trivia question. Well, the first uh, intro to the trivia question is that this year we won another award. Uh, the Gabriel Awards were given out uh, in May for radio, uh, TV, people in the Catholic sphere uh, who did something they deemed worthy. Last year, we won a Gabriel Award. And this year, we didn't get the first prize, but we got an honorable mention for our series covering COVID. And uh, as we were up against a number of people who do media full-time, uh, is a couple of... Uh, or a couple, three docs who just uh, don't know when to say no, we're pretty happy with the fact that we got recognized for doing something that uh, the Catholic Press Association 
thinks is important. Well, we figured if they didn't hear our first COVID episode, they might have caught one of the 60 other ones. So <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that they noticed. And uh, who, who knows what we'll be talking about next year? Who knows? But the medical trivia question is a, a short and sweet one. Category, the brain. Question, the brain accounts for about 2% of the weight of the body. What percent of the body's energy does it use on a daily basis? And that's whether you're sleeping, awake, thinking, or resting. You'll have to hang on till the end of the show to find out. We'll be back with our special guest, Kevin Majors, on Dr. Doctor after the break. Welcome to our special guest interview today with Dr. Kevin Majors returning to Dr. Doctor, our functional tour of the brain. Now, Kevin did a lot of training in Dallas for college, medical school, did a fellowship at the Beck Institute of Cognitive Therapy and Research in Philadelphia. Uh, for the last decade, he's been on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. He teaches cognitive behavioral therapy to psychiatrists in training. He's also co-founder of Optimal Work at OptimalWork.com and the Golden Hour podcast, which I highly recommend, and was covered in our last episode with Kevin. But today, Kevin's going to talk about how the brain works. Kevin, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Hey, Tom. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. So, Kevin, a question that we Catholics sometimes wonder about, and I'm just looking for a short answer here. We could do a whole episode on this. But what's the relationship between the brain and the mind? We don't want to seem materialistic. Uh, so, in other words, is the mind merely a name for what the brain does, or is the brain something the mind uses or something else altogether? I think that the, the clearest way of thinking of that is that the brain, like any organ in the body, is there for the person to use. We use our brain to do thinking. The brain is for acting and interacting. Just like you use your liver to break down things and you use <laughs> your kidneys to, you know, so it's always the person really doing the action, but the person needs, you know, the body to do certain actions. And the brain is for, again, acting and interacting. It's about what you decide to do, so it can, your behavior. But the behavior doesn't originate in the brain. Yeah, it, it doesn't, like when you decide to do anything, you can't say, oh yeah, that's because a certain part of the brain decided to do something. <laughs> so we use our brains in doing all the things of our normal life. Uh, but there are things in us that also go beyond the brain. So there are things that transcend the brain. You know, knowing anything that is really deeply true uh, and loving anything, those you can't point to love in the brain. You know, it uh so there are there are things that that transcend the brain. And then there are but when it comes to acting and interacting, we always are using the brain. Excellent. Yeah. Kevin, if if I were to ask you what organ in the body is most sensitive to changing based on behavior, I'd be tempted to think about, you know, your muscles, because if you exercise, you can make them stronger. However, you have a different answer to that question, don't you? Yeah. I think that the brain is the organ that is always most responsive to what you do. And it's looking to make it easier. So whenever you do something, your brain learns how to do it so that it can be easier the next time. And so when you are practice patience with something, okay, you're just aware that something is bothering you, but you let it go of trying to control it. You decide to just practice accepting it. It's harder at first, but it gets easier and easier the more you practice it because your brain is learning to not focus so much on that thing and instead practice this other way of being. So at the same time, if you are practicing, say, complaining, yeah, and you, you <laughs> and you're focusing on something negative. Your brain gets really good at complaining and noticing negative things, and those are like actually the two fundamental things that our brain is always doing. We're either like growing in patience or growing in complaint. So, and it's the things you complain about or you decide to be patient with. Your brain learns from what you do, and it always is easier the next time as a result of how you shaped it this time. Man, so that would almost be like the brain is making habits of how it's going to process stimuli. Yes. In some ways, you can say the brain is the organ of prediction. So it's trying to predict what, uh, you know, so even when you're sensing things, your brain is making a prediction of what this thing is. And so your interpretations of events are shaped by your brain predicting, oh, what does it, what do I think this means? And emotions are predictions about how you want to act. So in some ways, like if you have a craving for something, it really is just your brain predicting that this is what you're going to go for. 
And then you get primed to go for it with the craving. And if your brain thinks this is something to flee from, it gives you the emotion of anxiety or fear. To, it's a prediction that you're going to flee, so it gets you your fight or flight system ready. And so that emotions is a great are, segue yeah. mm -hmm. into a top-down system of the brain. So let's go to the first of these three systems, top-down or top-bottom, because I think it deals with what you were just talking about, doesn't it? What, what are roughly the top and bottom parts of the brain that you're referring to? And broadly speaking, what are their functions? When I'm talking about the, from a kind of cognitive behavioral perspective of top right. down, what I'm thinking about is really a very small axis up and down between the amygdala on the bottom and the, essentially your, your prefrontal cortex on the top. So the amygdala is the core of the lower cortex uh, and it functions as your threat detector. So it's, it's scanning everything that goes, that you're sensing, everything you're aware of in your environment, in your memories and thoughts and sensations, scanning everything for threats. And so it's in charge of the automatic detection of threats. The upper cortex, particularly it's the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, is the appraisal center. And that's in charge of the deliberate assessment of threats. Mm. or rather of opportunities. It's all about <laughs> deliberately seeing the opportunity versus automatically detecting a threat. It's the, when the appraisal center lights up by seeing something as an opportunity, it directly reaches into the amygdala and calms it down so the amygdala can go into a better learning state just to watch what you're doing. So if you're afraid of something, my easiest example is heights. And as you're approaching a high balcony, you're like, oh, you know, this, your amygdala detects a threat because say you've avoided them in the past. Well, if you consciously say, you know, this isn't a wonderful opportunity for me to learn to overcome this fear. I'm just going to practice retraining my amygdala and go on the balcony and let myself feel the fear. If you did that, your amygdala would learn rapidly because you would have reframed it. That's the first step reframe the threat as an opportunity for learning. One is automatic and fast. The other is deliberate, but ultimately more effective. This, this is making me think of that Pixar movie, Inside Out. I think we've referenced <laughs> it on a previous yeah. uh, brain one. And I'm, I'm recognizing as you're talking, there's no prefrontal cortex person. You know, <laughs> on the movie, there's, yeah. there, there's nobody driving the bus, so to speak. Everybody's competing. And then it, it makes me think sometimes of, of patients I might talk to, you know, saying, oh, I just can't help how I react. But that's not really true, is it? Well, it's partly true. We can't do anything about our automatic reactions, right? but we don't have to act on them. So, so if you were to, so if you want to become an angry person, then every time your amygdala detects that particular kind of threat and you get the fight response, give in to your anger. And you'll find that, boy, that fuse, it just get, it goes more and more easily. <laughs> That's but the if dark you want, side. Yeah. If, but if you want to be a loving and kind person, then even while angry, then whenever you get that anger, you're just aware that it's there. You're kind of accepting of the fact it got triggered but you're not giving into it with acting. Instead, you're letting the ideals of love and being, you know, understanding guide your behavior. If you so let you're your practicing ideal instead yeah. of practicing anger. Exactly. And then you get better and better at doing that. So, but the, actually the nice thing about that, this understanding is that if you're going to ask yourself, say you've gotten to be an angry person or a, an anxious person by fighting or fleeing a lot. Well, when is the moment that you can really change? Well, it's at the very moment that the anger or fear is at its height. To have it at its height and to patiently accept that and still, in fact, act on your ideals guarantees the next time it will be easier and the next time easier and the next time easier. You can't make it easier right now, but you don't have to give in to it. And, and so this training is so real that I have found studies and confirm if this is right, that you can train a, a hyperactive amygdala so that it actually shrinks in size over time. Is that right? Well, what, yeah. So like anything in the brain, if it's getting, 
used a lot and triggered a lot, then it kind of hypertrophies. It gets it gets, it gets inflamed, you could say. So really, it's sure. the, it restore, it's get, it, the amygdala, once you are no longer operating in fight or flight mode all the time, or threat mode, what I call it, you know, and, and being so triggerable and giving into them, well, then, yes. in fact, it does, which is really saying the more you practice reframing, which is deliberately in the moment of triggering, discover the opportunity for change and welcome it and be happy that you can actually change yourself right now. When you do that, the upper cortex, the appraisal center, just sends down right through your interior cingulate, the connector, <laughs> a, a soothing kind of you know uh, in, in, inhibition. And the amygdala then starts to get less inflamed. So in the end, it, it doesn't really shrink. It just goes back to normal. Very good. And that, that prefrontal cortex, that appraisal cortex, that's right behind the forehead, isn't it, in the brain? Yeah, exactly. It's somewhere up there. And the, the, neuro, the neuroscientists, you know, they where exactly the appraisal center is, is it's all pretty much, it's medial and probably ventral. Uh, so it's somewhere ah, okay. So yeah. down in, in the front, oh, whatever, but it does yeah. the job. And, and so what job. you're telling us how to do is this reframing, the way you talk about it is so much more helpful. I've heard other people talk about reframing as, well, what are other ways you could interpret this? Mm-hmm. But you take it just, what's the opportunity? And I, I find that so much more practical. Yeah, because I think it can happen. You actually, like, how do you know that you've really reframed something? You can get to the point of saying, bring it on. The more, the better. That so means, that's the best reframe, bring it on. Uh, yes. You need to get to the point where you can see, this is precisely the kind of practice I need. So like, you know, say that you're with someone who has a bad odor and you're like, no, no <laughs> I'm just, you know, it, uh, I'm just too sensitive to this. This is exactly the practice I need. Bring it on. The worse, the better. <laughs> You know, and then that's how I'm going to get over my sensitivity to smells. Well, if, that's just an example. It may be absurd, but but it's real life. And I think that's how whatever the thing is that's the trigger, you don't have to be dreading and complaining about it and trying to minimize and control it. Instead, you can use it as an opportunity for a, a higher kind of growth. And, and when we're talking as Catholics about growth, it's really virtue and holiness, isn't it? Yes. And, as, and in fact, when we go through the all the different parts like the axes in the brain, you'll see that that is a consistent um, theme that comes out. You know, well, let's go even, to the next axis, yeah. the, the, the front back. Okay. What do you mean by the, the front back axis, Kevin? Yeah, this is, gonna, this is a little more of, um, it's, it has to do with your attention and the time it's in, the time and place. The front part of the brain has present moment attention. It's to the here and now. So that's called task attention. So, but I think of it, it's probably better just calling it present attention. If you are completely, like right now, you and I are talking, I'm completely in the present moment. I'm not thinking about, uh, you know, what I need to buy on Amazon or what I need to, or the, or the <laughs> next thing I'm going to be doing tonight. I'm just, you know, uh, I'm just thinking you know, about the conversation, engaging it. So then that means that if you think of my attention, it's pretty much entirely in the present moment. Uh, and that's the benefit of conversations. Uh, but those other things, the past and the future, those are in the background attention. It's called the default mode network. But you can think of it as the background attention. So if you're, say, walking somewhere, you're walking, you're walking to, no, think of a destination you normally walk to, on your way there, you might not really be present to the things around you, but you might right. be thinking about the future, what you're going to do when you get there, or thinking about the past, what happened where you just left. Well, then you're really using more this background default attention. The default attention tends to be self-focused. It's always self-referential. Uh, and it re- it's about like, so usually about unfinished business. There's something that you're kind of working on in the background. The problem is the default attention isn't really great um, when you're consciously mulling in it and just dwelling on things. At its height, it becomes a kind of inward collapsing of attention where people get really separate from their here and now and the people they're with, and they're just lost in their own thoughts, perhaps worrying and ruminating. 
So if you can ever have, if you've ever had a time of very intense worry or rumination or obsessing, that's what it's like to be caught entirely in the default detention. And then you can see that in fact, what you're sacrificing is really being present in your work and to the people around you. It sounds like one of the goals would be to subordinate the default system to the frontal system rather than, than the yes. default. Just like you want the bottom to be formed by the top, here you want the front uh, present attention to be kind of where you normally are. And then the, what happens is the background attention ends up serving it very well. Okay, now what the background attention is made for is predicting the next thing to do, the next step. So that as soon as you finish, whatever you're doing now, you just naturally progress into the next step. So it's readying all these associations and memories so that when you get there, you're ready to use it. So for instance, if I'm seeing patients, I have you know the list of patients I have in the afternoon uh, or whatever time. As I'm with one patient, I'm totally just thinking about that one. But because I knew all the people coming up, just as I finish that one, I'm ready to do the next one and my memories and everything is all ready to go. That's very different than if someone shows up unexpectedly and then oh. you're not ready for it because your default attention hasn't prepared it for you. So at its best, you're, you're, you're personally really using your task attention, but your default attention or your predictive, you can call it predictive attention, it knows where you're trying to go and it's preparing everything along the way. At its height, that's how you enter flow, where now you're just fully in the present moment, but being pulled through each task you're doing because you've laid out in some way in advance what you're going to do. And then you just do one thing and the next and the next, kind of being pulled through. That's one of the you know the ways of getting your default attention working for your task attention. And now, it, does the default attention have anything to do with distraction? It's the source of all distraction. It's the source of all intrusive <laughs> thoughts. But a distraction really, what well, you have to ask yourself, a neuroscience perspective, what, what is a distraction? Uh -huh. It's simply a bad guess at what the next step was. Uh -huh. So your default attention is trying to prepare the next thing for you to do, but it didn't guess correctly. And so it pulls you accidentally off task. But the more aware you can be, of what you're accomplishing and the one thing you're trying to do right now, the better you get at training it. Is how how do we actually do that? Because I'm I'm thinking of people with like ADHD and and even people without ADHD, people who I think at times many of us get distracted. How do you train train that? Well, one thing you can do is, and I have to say that I don't think of ADHD as a trait. I think of it as a state. People with ADHD are, have a low threshold for giving in to distractions and impulses. And as a result, their default attention doesn't properly get trained for how to pull them through things. So the simplest way to start training your default attention is before you start working, you don't just jump in but you lay out some steps in advance of how you want it to unfold. Fortunately, your default attention knows the language you speak. So, <laughs> it, and if you lay out in advance the steps you want to go through, it is much easier then to go through them and maybe estimate how much time you want each step to take. So having that agenda or, you know, or plan in advance allows you to then much more naturally get pulled through. It's just like if you have a meeting, have you ever had a meeting with no agenda or stop time? It's horrible. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Be because no one's default attention is able to like start moving people through. But if there's an agenda, there's these points we're covering and there's a stop time, then everyone's default attention works together and you collectively get a sense, okay, now it's time to move on. Now it's time to move on. This is the right amount of time to give this thing and now we move on. So that's why you always need that kind of, you, you have the steps and the stop time, and that makes everything easy then for your default attention to predict what and how long it needs to take. 
Now, how can this front back help us when we have a difficult relationship or a difficult conversation where we're in this habit of responding in a way that just spirals things downward instead of spirals them to something better? I think there, um, there is the question of how do you truly be present to what you're feeling and simultaneously to the other person? So we can practice heightening our, our ability to be in the present moment simply by spending time tuning into the present moment alone. Yeah, and so the um, sensation of the breath is a very easy mm -hmm. way of anchoring your attention in the present moment. And what happens is, um, I'll get back, I'll, I'll try to get back to your question in a, in a moment, but just to say, sure. if you learn to practice holding your attention in something very neutral, like the breath, it's kind of like the simplest form of work. Your yes. default attention in a way isn't going to know what to, where, what to do next. So it's going to give you an impulse or distraction, but all you do is you, are you, you're aware of it, you let go of it, and you re-anchor yourself in the present moment. Now, if you do some kind of exercise like that, you get better and better at having impulses and distractions and just letting go of them without giving into them at all. And so gradually what happens then is the default attention starts to get the hang of it and sees what you're doing and makes it easier. So it gives you fewer and fewer of these kinds of intrusions. So that happens with practice. So the more people are practiced at um, holding themselves in the present moment, the easier it is for them to retrain their default attention. And the way of knowing that you're doing it is that you have inner silence. Because when the default attention gives you something, it's going to come to you as words, basically, as some thought. Ah, yes. So getting to hold yourself in silence, you know, and just to be silently in the present moment. And when the words come, you recognize they're there and let them go and return to the silence. It sounds like it would help a lot with prayer. You yeah, know, I don't know if anybody exactly. else gets distracted in, in prayer, like a holy hour or something like that, you know, because there's distractions that are coming, but it sounds like you can practice to get better attention and focus there. Yes, absolutely. I was just going to say that, that, that like on the natural level, the breath is the most simple thing, um, but it transfers directly to trying to be either meditating or just simply being like lovingly in the presence of God and trying to love God there present. Uh, but I usually tell people that it's sometimes good that they practice simply the breath part uh, without trying to make it prayer, so they get the hang of it. Yes. And then they'll naturally import those skills into prayer. But you kind of yes. need, it's sometimes it's helpful just to have 15 minutes a day you know, of practice and do it for a, two weeks and see how different your prayer is. And on this note, we'll take our break before we come back for the left, right, and putting it back together with Dr. Kevin Majors here on Dr. Doctor. We're back with the second half of our interview with Kevin Majors on our functional tour of the brain. We have done top down, front back. Now we're going to left, right. We hear a lot about, you know, people are either left brain dominant or they're right brain dominant. In fact, there was an article in your very own, well, your broadly Harvard health <laughs> blog that uh, stated, uh, according to conventional wisdom, people tend to have a personality thinking style or way of doing things that it is either right brained or left brained. What would you say to that? So I would refer people to the Oxford psychiatrist, Ian McGilchrist, who has redone the entire scholarship of right brain and left brain. And it's completely fascinating, the things that, 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 he, has, that he has come up with and put together. His most famous book is called The Master and His Emissary. Uh, but uh, sometimes a more accessible thing is his book, I think it's called Two Ways of Attending. Oh. Uh, and so, and that's a much shorter book. So there um, was a lot of misconceptions, you know, about, you know, in popular, you know, wisdom in like the 70s and 80s, you know, between like, oh, right brain people are artistic and left brain people are logical. <laughs> um, that is all totally overdone. Or that like right brain is for visual things and left brain is for words and language. And that's all you need for like for language. You definitely need your right brain and your left brain. So, but the difference between them is, is very real and very profound. Everything that has a brain 
there's a difference. There's asymmetry. There's a difference between the right and the left. Mm. This is true for every single thing that has a brain. So, or even a nervous system of any kind. So it's like, this is a, there's a fundamental asymmetry uh, between the right and left hemispheres. Okay. And this is in a sense, the, the most useful part of neuroscience, I think. So, so what, what specifically are the right and left sides? Or just so, cut it down the middle or? Yeah, you cut down the middle. Yeah, they're joined by the corpus callosum, but they're essentially, yeah, it's, it's down the middle. Now, the, um, the left brain view of the world uh, is very much linked to the fact that it controls, in most people, the right hand. And, and that's how you manipulate things. The left brain's view of, of um, meaning is thinking about the exact definition of a word. Uh, the left brain's view of morality is rules to be followed. Okay, the right brain's view of things is that uh, it sees morality, to start with that, as about ideals and bonds, not about rules. So that's a, already a very fundamental thing. It sees the meaning of a word as are you putting your intention and heart into it? So it's not about getting the words correctly defined and they're getting that sense of meaning right. It's about meaning what you say. So I think that's a good way of putting the difference between the left, which is verbal, um, but also is uh, very focused on getting things done, getting satisfaction. So it's all about getting the satisfaction of certain outcomes. Like the two emotions the left brain has has is satisfaction and frustration. <laughs> <laughs> the right brain is the rich part where you actually transcend yourself and are open to others. You're open to God. You're open to reality. Uh, the right brain actually is, uh, you could say, um, like you have that has to be used to have the sense of like using immaterial concepts, even though it doesn't have doesn't have the words. The left brain is inherently materialistic, and it thinks of things just in terms of use. Now, there's a lot of implications of that. One is Ian McIlchris kind of in, uh, implying that or saying that atheism is a kind of neurological disorder of excessive reliance on left brain processing uh, so that people are because it tends to be only about what is useful for satisfaction okay so in the really big picture it's about me versus others it's about satisfaction versus transcending other yourself with service so the right brain is it can operate in silence when you're loving others, you're bonding with others, you're seeing ideals of how you want to be, it turns out reframing and recollecting your attention in the present moment are right-brained activities, primarily. Uh, so there's there's uh, this richness that when you're just silently loving another person, especially God, that's the height of the right-brained activity versus just trying to get something rotely done. You know, and that's so that Kevin, what the left brain does. When I hear these wonderful things about right and left brain, you know, cynics or skeptics will ask, well, how do we know that? How do we know these two halves of our cerebral hemispheres do these very different things? Yeah, the answer is hundreds and hundreds of studies. Um, so the, the book that goes through and walks people through the literature is called The Master and His Emissary. But people are, you know, it's, it is a thorough evaluation of all the research. You know, the, on, the, on the difference between the right and left hemispheres. So the best I could do is just tell people, check out Ian McGilchrist, his YouTube videos, I-A-I-N sure. and McGilchrist. Um, his YouTube videos are excellent. He just had an interview with Jordan Peterson that, that came out, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, I still don't think he, you know, like these, these people, they're really good in what they do. And Ian McGilchrist is really good on right and left brain. <laughs> And all the neuroscience of it. I think when it comes to some things, I would take exception, like his understanding of philosophy and theology. Well, but you take what you you take the good from people, and his and his neuroscience is really really superb. You know, Kevin, when you're talking about right and left brain, I guess I'm familiar with the the more common layman's understanding of those. 
but you're describing it as the right brain should um, supervise the left brain. Is that yes. right? Yeah, so, that you can't be too right-brained. Okay, just you like can you, be too left-brained. You can be too left-brained. Just like you can't exercise task attention too much, because when you're doing that well, the default attention comes and serves it better, and you can't have too much deliberate appraisal of opportunities. Okay, so what, what does it look like when the left side is properly oriented to service of the right brain? Then it is seeking goals for higher ideals and intentions that transcend self. So it will get things done, but for the, the right motives. So if you're trying to do something, say, say you want to you know, clean the kitchen, the pure left brain you know, vision of that is just getting it done and doing it efficiently because the left brain tends to be obsessed with efficiency. It also might be more prone to be motivated by it with a sense of fear like if you don't get it clean enough, you know, your friends will judge you, you know, or, uh, or, or some, some other kind of emotions. The left brain is really susceptible to fear. The right brain approach to cleaning the kitchen would be as a way of showing love to your family or as a way of offering a sacrifice because you don't like cleaning. <laughs> and so you're going to offer <laughs> a loving sacrifice. But that sure. idea of loving sacrifice is actually purely a right brained idea. It doesn't serve any particular outcome. But it does serve bonds, and particularly the bond with God. So those higher motives that transcend self-satisfaction are purely right brain. The you know what it seems to explain to me, Kevin, very well that many Catholics can identify with is the little way of St. Teresa of Lisieux. Because from reading her writings, I think she put those great ideals into the smallest of her daily actions. And it acts like almost an escalator to higher levels of virtue. Does that make sense? That is absolutely right. And so by trying to put your whole attention into small actions and put love into that, to lovingly do small actions, not to get them done, but just to build your bond with God right now and to serve others somehow right now, that's the essence, I think, of the little way. But that's also the essence of how to be right-brained and how to put the right brain totally in control in a way that can is unmistakable. Only the right brain can do a motive of love in a small action or embracing a particular challenge. Thank you. No one connects faith and neuroscience like you, Kevin. <laughs> well, I, hope, I hope many will be better at this than I am. <laughs> so you know, I, I just happened to, I think, do some of the reading before I did. I've, I've heard people use left brain kind of almost as a, a uh, virtue, like, oh, you're doing a great job, you know, left brain uh, you did a great job on that test or very task oriented, which is, is as you're describing it. it to an extent, I think there's many of our listeners that might uh, be listening to this and say, well, gee whiz, I'm all left brain. Uh, is is there hope if if you're all left brain? Can you fix that and balance it out? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So um, because the left brain is all about outcomes, it's really driven by fear of not accomplishing things and fear of being frustrated. So anytime you reframe something that makes you afraid as an opportunity for some kind of growth, you're actually not just a, is that a top-down victory for the top, but even more important, it's a right-left victory for the right. So, so learning how to like try to not do things to get them done, but do them and not do them rotely, which is what the left brain does. It just does things always the same way and doesn't quickly to get them done, but instead. Be creative about doing them better. See how to improve how you do things and with higher motives, making it more about service. See, really the right and left brain is, are you aiming for self-satisfaction or are you aiming to serve others? So the motive of service is very right brain. So this is a good time to take these three different axes, top, down, front, back, left, right, and put them together in a practical setting. And you suggested something that, is all too familiar with many Catholics at the topic of scrupulosity. How can we use the example of someone who who suffers from scrupulosity, how they can better get over it with these this knowledge? Yeah, so I think I think scrupulosity is a very workable kind of affliction. Uh, but and you can think of it in each, through each of these axes. When you're thinking of it from the top-down perspective, what happens is people have a phobia of particular thoughts. 
their amygdala has identified something like, you know, people have scruples about moral matters or about prayer or about the devil, whatever the topic might be, those thoughts become extremely threatening. So the threat label those thoughts have is very big. Now, how do you reverse that? Well, the very moment those threats are detected, you can consciously, deliberately reframe that moment as an opportunity to retrain yourself. That's using the top-down axis. So you're using deliberate reframing of this as an opportunity so that you don't end up giving in to like try to you know control and get rid of the fear. So the therapy that comes from, you could say from that, um, is exposure therapy. And we don't have time to go into it here, but there is always a simple way of writing down the thought that scares you and letting your mind dwell on it again and again as you deliberately welcome the sensations of anxiety. If you do, if people do that, and you might, they might need to work with someone. And unfortunately, I don't have any great books that describe it. But as they do that, gradually the thought just becomes boring to them. The, the threat label starts <laughs> to work its way away. You know, and so you can write that thought down and then keep it around. But I think usually it's best to sit down and read it and reread it and reread it. You can even agree with it or put it in a scary voice. You know, and, <laughs> and, and you get, you get, because the, the secret is your amygdala, which is detecting these thoughts as a threat, doesn't even know, doesn't have language. It doesn't even know what those words mean. All it knows is that when they're put together like this, you avoid it. So what you're seeing here is that, and really a person just needs to do it practically one time to get the idea. These things are actually not that important. It's just my amygdala. That's all that's happening. So they can stop giving it importance. That leads to the next level, which is the front back thing. Okay. You know, and that these thoughts then become, unfortunately, a, too much like an unfinished business that your default attention thinks you need to somehow complete and work on. So whenever you're in between steps on a task, these thoughts come to mind as a distraction, or you're walking somewhere, or you're trying to go to sleep or whatever, and, and it, you get these intrusive thoughts. Well, all that means is that your part of your attention thinks this is something that has to be worked on. Well, you treat these thoughts then like you treat any distraction. You just recognize it's there and you let go of it. Ah, there it is. You wave at it, think it's there. You label it playfully. <laughs> And you let it go and you re-engage the task at hand or the person at hand or, or God who's always at hand. You just bring yourself back to the present moment. These thoughts come from, again, your default attention. When you can really practice holding your attention well in the present moment, you discover that they're just there occasionally as distractions that get easier and easier to handle over time. So that's like the, how the front back thing works. You just recollect your attention in the present moment and practice not pushing the thought away just gently let them go as irrelevant. The left-right thing is, is even more so. It's like the person has to sincerely ask themselves, in this, when I have this scruple, you know, whatever the kind of worry they have about something moral uh, in this case, are they really just seeking a kind of satisfaction of relief from the scruple? Or are they really seeking to build their bond with God? So if the more they sincerely try to just set aside self-satisfaction and embrace this particular cross of the scruple, it actually can bring them closer to God and build their bond. The very pain of the scruple can become what an amplifier of their loving bond with God right now. So this, this, so it's trying to get rid of the pain. It's actually the problem. Just accept it. It's not the right use of guilt. The, the scruple actually kind of hijacks guilt. No, you want guilt only for real things. And I think people with scrupulosity do truly know when they've done something really wrong versus the scruple. And so they just have to trust that sense and then trust in God. And then, yes, it's going to feel hard at first, but it gets easier and easier because the brain is the organ that most responds to your behavior and practice. Once you start practicing the right form of letting go and seeking the bond, it gets easier and easier. Kevin, this is beautifully described. And I know in your Golden Hour podcast, you have some episodes dedicated to this. One I refer my friends to is uh, number 47, where you kind of go through the essence of the Golden Hour, the, the three different aspects that you've been covering so much here. Are there any other topics you've covered that 
you think would help amplify what you've talked about uh, in this episode of Dr. Doctor? Uh, if people go to the YouTube channel for Optimal Work, they can see different mm -hmm. playlists. And in those wow. playlists, you know, there's one on science. And then you'll see all oh. the episodes that actually that it's the same podcast, but it's just YouTube allows playlists more easily. So um, and so go to the YouTube channel for Optimal Work and then check out the science playlist. And then you'll see us going through all these different axes. Oh, that's beautiful. And, you know, in our last minute and a half, what final comments do you have for listeners? Uh, you know, I think that when we're talking about neuroscience, it could sound to people who haven't you know, studied a lot of it, you know, okay, this is all very confusing stuff. Um, the, if you can be, you know, simply seeking God in silence, you are there exercising the very highest level of neuroscience. It's purely deliberate, it's purely present, and it's purely trans self-transcending. And so these things, while they, there's a lot of detail, and there's, there's you know, thousands and thousands of neuroscience studies, and they're, they're, they can be very difficult to read. But when it comes to practicing it, it's pretty straightforward. Do things for love, put your heart into what you're doing, and just one thing at a time, you know, embracing each challenge as an opportunity, and you will be redoing all the retraining that you need. Kevin, thank you so much. I can't recommend highly enough the uh, Golden Hour podcast at OptimalWork.com. It's changed my life. I hope it changes yours. I hope Kevin can come back and uh, help our listeners gain more uh, connection between faith and neuroscience. Thank you, Kevin. I look forward to it. Thank you so much, Tom and Andrew. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. Yes, with the category being the brain... The brain accounts for about 2% of the weight of the body, not very much. So what percent of the body's energy does it use on a daily basis? The answer could range from zero to 100. Andrew, did you know the answer to this before? I, I, had, heard, I had heard about this before, probably in med school or something, but it's impressive 20%. 20%, one-fifth of body energy is used by the brain. And uh, I've read on different websites, well, what about when they do all those MRI tests or PET CT scans and, or FDG PET CT to see, you know, where is the brain using a lot of energy at that moment and it lights up with all these colors? Well, even when it lights up with those colors, that is at most about an 8% increase in how much the brain is using, not a big increase. In other words, the, the circuits are always talking. They're always doing something. So whether whether you're thinking really hard or not thinking really hard, still using a lot of energy. Even when you're sleeping, the brain is reorganizing. It's who knows? I mean, it's just incredible. And I also read in some of the research I did on this question that, you know, that, that myth that we're only using 10% of our brain, that, that's not true. If we use 30% or, you know that much more brain, we'd need that much more energy. It would just be incredibly taxing. No, the brain, it, it's always doing stuff. See, well, and that makes sense too, if you think about even just all the daily functions that we would call mindless, they're not really yes. mindless. You know, maybe we're not no. paying attention to them, which which uh, Kevin Majors is trying to help us with, but uh, <laughs> we are sure still doing them. So what so. are your three top takeaways from this episode, Andrew? Man, I, I love I love hearing about this stuff and kind of bringing these complex ideas uh, into a way that's digestible for us. I guess the first thing, the first takeaway I, I kind of had listening to it was, it's not too late for any of us <laughs> because <laughs> as, as we're hearing about these these axes, uh, a lot of times you know it's it's a reorganization that Dr. Majors is recommending. Um, and a subordination of kind of your instincts to your ideals. And so no matter where you find yourself, and maybe in some of the axes, you're better than others. Uh, but the scrupulosity example that he used, I thought was salient for a lot of folks. And we could use that as an analogy to other things. Um, but wherever you're at, it's not too late. So that's number one. Number two is that the whole the whole purpose of these things and and you know, whether you, you say it as a purpose or whether it just comes along with it is to grow in virtue. So getting the brain to work better is not only going to help you in whatever you're trying to do, but you're literally going to grow in virtue and holiness and you're going to become a better person. 
And so that that was number two, that this is not just a esoteric thing or it's not self-serving necessarily. And, and number three, you know, he talked about the need for an example and a need for ideals. Uh, we don't know how we're responding as poor, except in compared to how we would like to respond. And so you always have to have an ideal that you're trying to pursue. And the the best example is Christ. You know, we have the life of Christ. We have the crucifixion, which uh, Kevin Majors talks about encompassing every virtue, you know, and so plenty for meditation there. But even even more proximate to that, you can see in, in our heroes and our mentors, even smaller examples of, of how I wish I would have done this differently or when this comes up next time, I'm going to do it this way. And so as, as he said in other episodes that I really liked, it's becoming the best version of yourself. Amen to that, Andrew. And thank you listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen to their favorite podcast app. And be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. And you can find all of our old episodes on drdoctor.com. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment. We didn't get the .com, Andrew. Did we miss the .com? Oh, man. Well, you better look at .org then, drdoctor.org. If you don't see our smiling faces, you're at the wrong spot. (laughs) (laughs) This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Valley, drdoctor.org, signing off to your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.